It is great to be with you today. Merry Christmas to everyone. Thank you for coming out to worship with us. Uh, if you're like our family, by 10 a.m., uh, you need an outing. Uh, you got to get out of the house. I first married into Ginny's family, and I, um, as you often do when you're getting to know your in-laws and they show you all the embarrassing pictures of their kids, um, I, I remarked to Ginny, I said, like, why does your family do Christmas at night? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, it was like you guys are opening presents at night and all these pictures. And she was like, oh, no, that's, that's morning. It's just <laughs> not light yet. Um, so perhaps you're here because opening gifts did not take nearly as long as you thought. Uh, or perhaps you're here uh, because this is the place you would most want to be any day of the year. Whatever brought you here, I am so glad that we're worshiping together. Uh, this time of year, it is a lot of waiting, and today is the day we've been waiting for. But truth be told, I'm not very good at waiting. I don't like it at all. Last week, we were out doing some last-minute Christmas shopping at Costco, and I had our four-year-old twins in the car, and I grumbled something about the traffic in front of us and perhaps about the character of the driver in the car in front of us. Uh, and my kids, just when I thought they weren't looking, uh, told me, calm down, be patient, Dad. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> um, and uh, they're still cute enough that that's not annoying. And, uh, you know, it's humbling when four-year-olds are more spiritually mature than you are. Uh, but waiting can be hard. And in this Christmas story we've been looking at in Luke uh, for the past several weeks and that Charlie read for us today, there is a lot of waiting as well. The angels and shepherds, they've come to see Christ born in a stable. They've worshipped him. They've returned. They've gone glorifying and praising God for what they'd seen and heard. Mary's treasuring and pondering these same things she's heard. Like, uh, angel, like the angel Gabriel told her to do, she uh, names him Jesus, and then they get to wait for a while. They get to rest for 40 days before they have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Turns out the Old Testament law can be merciful and kind sometimes. You deserve a rest when you've given birth in a barn, uh, and you get some time off before you have to start traveling again. That's where we pick up before their first Christmas road trip as a family. And in these first chapters of Luke, they are just, the, Simeon and Anna, two people we meet in the temple, are just the latest two folks that have been waiting. Zachariah and Elizabeth waited, Mary and Joseph did. Others are waiting in the temple with Simeon and Anna. They're gathered in the temple courts, and they're waiting too. This is Luke 25, as Charlie read for us. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He had been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and I'm just going to pause right there. Simeon has been waiting. Anna's been waiting a long time. She's 84, as Charlie mentioned. They are representatives of those in Israel who have been waiting for the Messiah that God has promised long ago and would bring salvation and redemption. And when Mary and Joseph walked in to the temple that day, they saw this haggard-looking family, probably off to the side, 
not coming with beautiful Christian gowns or clothes. I mean, they've been hanging out in a barn for not just one night, but 40 days. So he, maybe Simeon smelled them coming before he saw them. Uh, he looks over and he sees this couple with their new baby. And he says, that is the king of the world right there. That's what they've been waiting for. Maybe some of you know what it feels like to wait a long time for something too. Maybe after last night, you're starting to get excited. You're one of those people who's been waiting 25 years for cowboys to look like serious Super Bowl contenders. You're starting to get excited. I'm not going to jinx it because jinxes aren't real. You came to church. You're going to hear that spiritual truth today. Uh, but you're getting excited. Those aren't the types of weights, though, that weigh heaviest on our hearts, are they? Some of you in this church right now are waiting on their own version of good news, waiting for a diagnosis or a treatment plan for one you've recently gotten, waiting for a family member's slow, painfully slow rehab to start to show some progress that you can see and that can encourage them. Some of you are waiting, waiting for a baby like Mary. We have had some long waits in our household too. Many of you know my wife's had some major health problems that took a lot of painful waiting. We had eight years of waiting on the Lord before we were able to start a family. There were a couple of Christmases in a row there where it felt like we were surrounded by exceedingly fertile couples. And every time we would come to church and hear these stories of Mary's miraculous, totally untried for pregnancy, I would feel mad at God. Like, why... Why can't we get some of that immaculate conception to God? Most recently, uh, we've had several hard years with a feeding tube and a lot of other interventions with Vivian, who was one pound, five ounces when she was born. It's taken us years to finally make it on the first, percent, first percentile of the growth chart. The good news is we're there, but it has been a long wait, and it has not been easy. Now, I can't give up, stand up here and give you a truthful testimony without saying that uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I see God's immeasurable goodness in so much of this. But there were plenty of moments along the way where it felt like we were waiting and waiting and waiting for something that we still had hope would happen, but the wait was getting harder and harder. And again, you know what this is like because many of you are there right now or you've been there before. One of the greatest privileges you can give to others, to your pastors, and to the people in your pews is to invite yourself into their waiting when they're in one of those seasons. You've done that for us, and it's blessed us. And to invite others into your own waiting with you when you're there. But I also know that even when you're not waiting alone, when you're still waiting with hope of what's promised, it is not easy. Henry Nouwen once wrote about the idea that in our culture, we generally don't like, to have, uh, like having to wait, uh, at least me. But I know that's none of you all. But his theory is largely because we think that he's, his theory is that we don't like waiting largely because we see it as primarily passive. It's something that happens to us and which we can't really do anything about. And we don't like this because we're people of action who prefer to take charge and do something to move rather than to sit around and wait. That's probably why we hate traffic. I'm not uh, when, when Robbie is not giving me a uh, good word about the virtue of patience, he's great at helping me brainstorm ideas for inventions to deal with the problem of traffic. My favorite is the giant leaf blower thing attached to the front of the car that blows everything out of the way. 
And as an aside, if there are any VC folks in the room, uh, my son has some great prototype sketches he can show you. You'll want to get on the ground floor of this one. It's going to be big. I think Henry Nallum was on to something, though. We don't like to wait because it feels passive, like something is being done to us and that we can't fast forward through. But for Simeon and Anna and those in the temple that day, they also hadn't been able to fast forward through things. 84 years is a long time to wait. Some of you have been waiting for things for 84 years, like someone that you love, to have the same kind of moment that Simeon has when he looks into the eyes of Jesus and to recognize them as their savior. That is a lot of waiting and praying that you have done on behalf of others. They saw in Jesus that all their waiting had been rewarded and God's promises were fulfilled. It says, uh, he took him up in his arms, and then what does he do? He blessed God, and he says this, Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then Anna, who's also been waiting longer than Simeon, we can assume, because Luke goes out of his way to tell us just how long. She comes up at that same time, Luke verse 38, and she began to give thanks for God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She is a prophet, one of the few female prophets in Israel, and she starts preaching and people start listening. So what is it about this experience they have in the temple with Jesus that day that makes them sure that the promised thing they've been waiting for, the redemption of Israel, the Messiah, has come? How do we wait so well like them, and how do we experience a peace like the one they experienced that day? How do we wait in the meantime now as we look forward to Christ coming again? Jay talked about that a few weeks ago, how Advent as a liturgical season began not as a way primarily to look forward to Christmas, but as a way to look forward to Christ's second return by focusing on his first. The answer, and it won't surprise you that this is what I'm going to tell you, the answer to these questions is right here in the story. But before we take a deeper look at a few of these verses, I just want to say a couple of things about the temple. Forty days have passed. According to Old Testament law, Luke points this out. He wants to be very clear. They are doing what they're supposed to do. All the things that people have been saying about Mary and Joseph and this questionable backstory that sounds a lot like they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing and they were doing what they weren't supposed to be doing. All that, all that talk Luke wants to make clear. They are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They've gone up to the temple in Jerusalem for the ritual purification rites of their religion. The temple in ancient Near East, many cultures and religions had temples. You probably know this. They've worshipped there. That's where they worshipped their gods. There were often statues of gods or idols that were in the temples to be worshipped. It was believed that the temple was literally the house of God. That's where God lived. Temples were often thought of as, uh, uh, and temples were uh, where legions of priests served God. Egypt had many gods and many temples. The Assyrians, Babylonians, they had temples. The Greeks and Romans had lots of them too. Sacrifices of one kind or another were almost always a part of their worship. And these, temp these temples functioned in the minds of their adherents uh, like, like the navel of the world. This is where 
the earth down here is connected to whatever you believe is up there. I mean, you know, a little bit different uh, views between Egyptians and uh, Jews and Babylonians and all that. But that was what a temple was. Uh, Israel did not always, always have one. They had one God, and eventually they had one temple. And even though by the time Jesus was born, Israel had unwillingly been incorporated into the Roman Empire as one of its provinces, the Roman strategy for empire building was essentially to let you keep your religion and let you keep your temple so long as you did two things, pay your taxes and don't revolt against the empire. Uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of the temple in the life of the ancient Jewish people. Uh, they were once conquered by the Babylonians, and they did not have that same pragmatic policy as the Romans. Their policy was move in right away and uh, tear everything down. They wanted to start over. Uh, so when Israel was finally allowed uh, under Roman auspices to rebuild their temple and begin their worship. They didn't like paying the taxes. They did not like being a part of Rome, but it was better than what they had had before. Uh, and they were very grateful to have a second temple built. It was built on Mount Moriah, this uh, place of supreme importance to uh, ancient Israel. It's where Abraham was instructed by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac as a test where Isaac, sensing that something was amiss, had asked his father why they hadn't brought a lamb for sacrifice and was told by ever-faithful Abraham that they hadn't brought one because he trusted that God would provide the lamb. They hadn't always had a temple in Israel, but they did now. And once again, God would provide the lamb. In Jesus' day, the temple dominated the cultural, religious, and social landscape of their world, just as it dominated physically the landscape of Jerusalem. And I think we had a couple of pictures of there up. Uh, might do that a minute. But just as you are picturing this story Charlie's reading, don't just picture, you know, coming right in off University Boulevard into, you know, sanctuary. Uh, this is a massive complex. Just to get an idea of the scale, the scale here, uh, it's a fortress. American Airlines Center takes up about 15 acres. This temple, 36 acres. That is how big this thing is. This is not a, uh, like, this is the original megachurch, okay? Not a Texas invention. Uh, so they're going in there, and there are people everywhere. That's why there's money changers. That's why there's uh, all sorts of stuff going on in this va these vast courtyards. Uh, but it was the place where you came to reconcile with God, to fulfill the requirements of the law, and that's what they go to do. Now, we need reconciliation with God today, and sometimes it's for the same things that the Israelites did, but thankfully, not always for the same things. Can you imagine if you had to get the kids ready and bring them in for, uh, say, baptism, and in addition to deal with, dealing with the christening dress and the older kids' hair, you also had to bring birds or livestock? It would be, it would be a lot. Um, and uh, <laughs> we would see some stressed out moms, that's for sure. Um, but Mary and Joseph, they are going there to fulfill what the law requires in that day. They brought baby Jesus into the temple time of purification had come. There's two religious obligations I want to take a little bit closer look at here, and then uh, I promise we will, we will move on from the history lesson, but I can tell there are some of you who just live for this stuff, this, this, uh, this old world history. They have two religion, religious obligations to fill when baby's born. 
Uh, when the first male baby is born in a family, you have to dedicate him to God as part of a ceremony at the temple. That's Exodus 13:2. Consecrate to me all firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among my people of Israel, both man and beast. So you've got to do it when the livestock and when the pets have their firstborn too. Uh, I think Nelson Bell has a load of puppies being born in the next day or two, so you can ask him if he is uh, reading Exodus these days. You have to do that when you have the firstborn male in the family, and anytime there's a new baby, uh, the family must make a sacrifice for the mother to be spiritually purified after childbirth. That's their custom, and they're going to do both of these things. That second one uh, comes from Leviticus 2.6, and Luke points out that they brought with them a pair of pigeons and turtle doves, as it was according to the law. Now, to us, that probably doesn't, you know, jump out as some meaningful thing because we're not familiar with the uh, Old Testament law. It's not a part of what we think about when we're worrying, what do we need to make sure we get in the car on our way to church? Um, but that sticks out to Luke's original audience for two reasons. The first is that uh, this is a sign of how poor Joseph and Mary are. Uh, they, you are allowed to bring, uh, you're allowed to bring uh, two little birds for this. But what you're supposed to do, really, if you've got your act together as a family or you have the resources, is to bring a lamb and a bird. But there's a provision in, ex in, in the law, mercifully so, because God knows what is going on in the lives of his people, that says if you, can't afford, if you cannot afford a lamb, you may bring the bird instead in its place. So Mary and Joseph are identified to anyone listening to Luke's story, to anyone walking in that day, because there would have been other families walking in with their, uh, with their lambs as well. Some of them were probably the, uh, if any of you grew up with the, the kids who have like the, the lambs they raise uh, at a competition, and you know, you'd have some that are a little scraggly looking, and then you know, you've got the straight A student whose lamb is perfect and white, and they've used the special bleaching stuff, right? Uh, they're not the only ones coming in that day, there would have been other families. So Luke is pointing out they're fulfilling their obligations, but to anyone who knows their culture, this is a family who does not have a lot to offer in a way of sacrifice, and they're getting by with the bare minimum, following the law, but just skating by. He's also probably pointing out, again, as I mentioned, that they are following the law because uh, as Brian talked about in a sermon in previous weeks, there was a lot of skepticism, not just in our day, but back then, about this uh, backstory that Mary had for how she came to be pregnant in the first place. Modern people uh, with our knowledge of science are not the only ones who had a hard time swallowing that one. That's why uh, this is a controversial thing even in Jesus' day. They know where babies come from. So they go in, to make their sacrifice. They're a family that doesn't have much. They've got their birds. They can't afford a lamb. You can imagine maybe some people thinking, well, I mean, they just spent all this time with shepherds. They couldn't even bring one lamb. And they come, and they come to, off, they come to make these sacrifices to offer atonement for sin, as it says. What they are doing it's not just listening, the, the point of the law here, the point of the law in ancient Israel was to make the people right with God. The point of worship and sacrifices was to take people who, because they had sinned, they had treated others in ways that were not like God's vision for how we're supposed to live together. They had violated God's commands. 
And the way that they made atonement for sin was to worship and to offer sacrifice to God. These public acts by where they said some of the things that were most important in their lives, you can think of livestock in, the, in an agrarian society as uh, a part of your business, as a way of saying, I am giving what I have to the Lord. It will, go, uh, it will uh, be a way to make right my gap in what I am supposed to be doing and what I am not living up to. This word atonement was uh, made up. It was an Eng- there was no word in English for it until William Tyndale translated the Bible, and he did not have an English word to translate uh, what was going on here into English. So he just made up the word at-one-ment, at-one-ment, to worship God and to offer true sacrifices in their day and age was to become at one with God. Mary and Joseph marvel at what Simeon says as they're coming in just to do this. He holds the baby Jesus tenderly in his arms, and because of what the Holy Spirit enabled him to see, he knew there was more than what, first, than what at first meets the eye going on here. Max Lucado has a really helpful way uh, to frame our approach to reading the Bible and to see what's going on here. He says there are always two stories being told simultaneously, a lower story and an upper story. This is a way of reading the Bible that uh, makes sense to those who wrote it because that's how they read and interpret the world around them. They don't just have five senses to experience the world with, but they have spiritual sight as well. That's what Simeon has. He sees in the midst of what looks like the lower story of a poor family with a questionable pregnancy coming in to do the bare minimum, uh, he sees a different story happening. He sees the upper story truth for what it is. That these people had, that these people were the fulfillment, bringing with them Jesus, the Messiah, the one they'd expected, who was the fulfillment of the law. In their attempts to live up to the letter of it, they have built this whole system, this whole economy around making sacrifices and the worship at the temple. You don't build buildings like that for free, and you don't uh, build buildings like that to let them go unused. In their attempts to follow the law to the letter or sometimes to figure out loopholes to get around having to follow the law to the letter, the Jewish people over time had forgotten its spirit. The Old Testament is largely uh, a story of the people forgetting the spirit of the law and making too much of following the letter to it. That's why Jesus, when he's asked, you know, "What's, what's the point of the law? Boil this all down for me. He says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Even if you're following to the letter and you're missing those two things, you might as well ignore the whole thing because you don't understand what it's all about, he says. It's about relational repair between God and his people. And we won't go into more and more uh, details about the Old Testament law, but a lot of times it sounds confusing uh, and we wonder, why are they doing that? But if we learn more and study, and if you ever read any of the tiny little notes at, your bio, uh, your, at the bottom of your Bible, uh, and we learn about what's going on in their day, we'll see that they're all forms of relational repair, either between the people and God or the people in each other. So Jesus is brought into the temple. Simeon sees what's going on according to God's upper story in the midst of the chaos of a lower story world. 
just like John the Baptist later on would see Jesus coming and say, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knew that there would be so many caught up in the hurried immediacy of their lower story lives. Again, maybe some of you felt that way this Advent or uh, like us as it was 11 o'clock and you were still wrapping presents last night. The hurried immediacy of the tasks of the lower story can sometimes crowd in our vision and they help us from seeing God's upper story sometimes even when we're holding it in our arms. That's what's going on here. Simeon has that spiritual sight. And if we want to know how we can wait well in times that are trying, we need to ask the Spirit for that same sight. Jesus knew this, and that's why he gives us his Spirit. When the walls of your lower story life feel like they're caving in around you, I pray that today and this year, you'll put your trust in not in whatever your lower story God or lower story solution or your lower story temple might be, whether that's your job or your bank account or even what your doctors say, but instead that you would put your trust in the God of the upper story, in Jesus, the Lord of the upper room, and the one who is the temple of God himself. Simeon and Anna and the people gathered in the temple courtyards that day know this. That is why Luke tells us, that's why Simeon says, I have seen the Lord's salvation today, and now I have this peace that I've been waiting my whole life for, that he has seen the God of the upper story. He knows that this is not just Mary and Joseph bringing their firstborn son to cover up the sin uh, that has separated them, because even Mary and Joseph were not perfect, no, Simeon, with the eyes of the upper stories, knows that this is God presenting his firstborn son at the temple, that this is the sacrifice that's going to end all others. The thing about the firstborn son is you only have to do it once. Once that sacrifice is made, you don't have to do it for the rest of the children that are born. That sacrifice covers for the rest of them. In Christ, God has made us his second-born sons and daughters. That is why when Jesus dies on the cross for you and me, we say the law is fulfilled. The Old Testament law is not ended. Jesus is at pains to say it. It is fulfilled in what happens. The sacrifice is made once and for all. The prayer that we have for one another, the prayer that we have for those who wish we would believe is simply that the Lord would give them the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual sight to recognize that the sacrifice of God's firstborn son covers them too. As Charlie said, we are adopted into this family. And so when we are waiting, when we need to remember that, what we do is we draw near to his temple. This is the very practical application we can see in these short verses where Simeon and Anna experience this peace in this moment with Jesus. We draw near to his temple in the power of the Holy Spirit. We fulfill God's laws, again, not getting caught up in the letter of it, but listening to the spirit of it. Like Jesus says, that is the part of the law that is still uh, important for us today, that we would love God and love others. We come to worship and we pray and we fast. 
We join in glad adoration. We receive Jesus as the Lord's Christ. The, the Greek word for Simeon taking Jesus into his arms is actually to receive him. We receive this baby. We receive the crucified and risen Jesus as the Lord's Messiah, his anointed one, our Savior. And then we see his salvation. We bless God. That's a prayer of thanksgiving for what he is doing, for doing as he has promised. And like Anna, we speak to all those who are waiting as well, whatever it is they're waiting in, we speak to them about who Jesus is. And that is where the peace comes from. And that is why Simeon has peace. And that is how we may depart in peace as Christ's servants. The promise also is that we will rise with him. And so that is my prayer for you and yours this Christmas, that you would draw near to the one who is the temple of God himself who has drawn near to you in Christ Jesus, that you would believe what Jesus says when he says that his body is the temple and that you as believers in Christ are his body, that you would draw near to one another for you are the temple. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would give us that spiritual sight that Simeon has, that Anna has, that we would recognize your son for who he is. Father God, we thank you for the life that you give us through Jesus and the new life that you enable together. Father God, as we sing this final hymn, help us with our worship to draw near to your temple, to the one who is your lamb, who is your temple, that we would worship in spirit and truth, not just in the remaining time together in this room, but in our daily lives, each and every day, for that is the meaning of Christmas. And it is in Christ's mighty name that we pray. Amen.